Very good. Well, you could turn to the other side of your bulletin for our scripture passage this afternoon. We'll be considering together as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, verses 8 to 12. Luke 12, verses 8 to 12. There the scripture says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, Well, the passage we are considering uh, together this afternoon continues uh, on in a line of sayings in which Jesus is giving. Uh, Particularly the the context we find for these passages comes, we see in the verses before this, uh, Jesus has been speaking of the danger of hypocrisy. Uh, He's been speaking of the danger of fearing men. Uh, He's giving this discourse as we find the beginning of uh, Luke chapter 12 in the presence of many thousands of people. Uh, So he's warning about particular dangers uh, that his disciples will face in the coming years. Uh, He's warning, he says in the beginning of uh, chapter 12, about uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, to to watch out for these things uh, and to not fear men. Not to fear those who could kill the body, but to fear the one who has power over the soul, he says. And so as we continue on in uh, these sayings of Jesus, we come to a passage Uh, this afternoon, which I think speaks to how uh, our Christian faith uh, interacts with the world around us. Uh, How does our faith as Christians interact with the world? How should it interact with the world? Uh, What should be our convictions? What should be our outlook? Uh, What should be our disposition as we carry our Christian faith uh, in the one true Lord Jesus Christ into the world around us? I think this is Jesus' main emphasis in our verses this afternoon. So I'd like to look at particularly two points from our passage this afternoon. Uh, first, I'd like for us to consider uh, the, the necessity and need to confess the faith. Our first point is confessing the faith. And, and secondly, uh, in verses 11 and 12, I think Jesus teaches us about defending the faith. Uh, so first, confessing the faith, and secondly, defending the faith. Uh, so first, I'd like to look at this first point, confessing the faith, particularly in verses 8 to 10. So let's, let us read... Uh, Again, together again, uh, verses 8 through 10. Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So as Jesus addresses his disciples here, I think he addresses particularly two different things. He exhorts to what we might call the good confession, the true confession, and he warns against a bad confession, a bad confession, and gives us the eternal consequences of these two things. So I'd like for us to look at both of these things. First, the good confession that Jesus describes here. We see it at the very beginning in verse 8. Uh, The the main exhortation, command, uh, encouragement that Jesus gives here is for his 
disciples and followers to acknowledge me, he says. Uh, to confess who he is and what he will do. That's a call for his disciples to confess, to acknowledge Christ. And to do so particularly, he says, before men. Before men. Uh, in fact, the very word that Jesus uses here for acknowledge uh, has the connotation of a, of a public context. Uh, he's, he's not speaking about just a private confession in one's heart. Uh, but he is speaking about the public confession of his followers to the world around them. And here we see, I think, a very important point that Jesus makes, which is that there is the necessity of confessing Christ before men for all true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we cannot simply just keep our faith to ourselves, believe in our hearts, uh, but true Christian faith carries with it the necessity uh, to be publicly confessed to be proclaimed outside of ourselves. I think the Apostle Paul states this very clearly uh, in Romans chapter 10. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, that famous passage in which he speaks about how faith comes about, uh, primarily through the preaching of the word, in verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10, he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you see, Paul here in Romans chapter 10 is speaking about the true nature of Christian salvation, of, of Christian faith, we might say. And he, he identifies two particular aspects. Uh, it is a, a believing in the heart. Uh, it can't just be an external knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a believing in the heart. He says, by believing in one's heart, one is justified. But he adds to it even further. That, that belief in the heart cannot just stay there if it is truly faith. He says, one must believe in your heart and with the mouth confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this very basic truth about Christian faith that Paul here describes in Romans 10 is what Jesus calls his disciples and followers to in Luke chapter 12. Uh, he's calling each and every one of us to be involved in this great task, uh, this, this necessity of confessing him before men, before the world all around us. Uh, so we might ask, how exactly does this happen? Uh, how does this confessing and acknowledging of Christ before men happen in each and every one of our lives? I think it happens first and foremost, Jesus here envisions, is our confession uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ before men, especially as we join the church. Uh, we confess Christ as we profess our faith before men, join and come into membership of the church. Uh, as children come to the Lord's table professing their faith. That's a way in which this is expressed. I think we do this individually as Christians also, as we go about in our lives and the world around us. Uh, and, and live our lives. And people ask us about the Christian faith that we have. We confess Christ to those who ask us. We speak of Christ individually to those around us. So certainly Jesus is here emphasizing the, the individual necessity uh, for each and every one of us to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. I think even more this is also a work that is done not simply by the individual, but this is a work of the church as a whole. Uh, not just us as individuals confess Christ, but Christ calls his whole church uh, as an institution, to be engaged in this work, uh, in this necessity of confessing Christ. 
And so I think we see this very powerfully as we gather every Lord's Day morning for worship. When we gather together, we confess together the Apostles' Creed. And in that moment, we are doing exactly what Jesus calls us here to do. We are acknowledging before men the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, I think this is why we as a church have a confession of faith. Uh, we receive creeds and confessions, and we hold to them. Uh, because we understand this important duty that Christ calls us to. We are called to confess Christ. We do this as individuals. We do this as the church. We do this through our ministers as they preach and teach the gospel and confess Christ to men. So see, this is how it happens. It is necessary for us to confess Christ, but we, we might also ask the further question, uh, what is this particular confession of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, for many people believe in Jesus. Uh, we see this throughout the New Testament, that there are those false teachers who do not reject or deny Jesus outright, but throughout the, the New Testament we find what this confession or acknowledgement that Jesus here uh, calls us to describe in detail. Uh, throughout the New Testament we find the, the content of this confession. I think we particularly see this uh, most uh, clearly and powerfully throughout the letter of 1 John, uh, as the Apostle John there um, combats and, and speaks against the false teaching, those who have gone out of the church and are, are teaching false things. He, he continually calls Christians there to acknowledge who Jesus is, uh, that he is one with the Father, that he has come in the flesh, that he has accomplished redemption for his people. See, this, in fact, is what Jesus is calling us to do here. We are called to do it before men. Uh, so he's exhorting us to do this, and to do so with boldness, we might say. This, this is the good confession. But we also find Jesus warning against what we might call the bad confession. Uh, there's a contrast that he makes here. You notice in verse 8, he says that to everyone who acknowledges me before the Son of Man, uh, before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him. But, in verse 9, but there's a contrast. That there are those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Who reject him. Who do not receive the, the true doctrine of who he is. Do not believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. This is, he says, the bad confession. Uh, but notice even more in verse 10, it, it goes even a step further uh, and speaks of this, this uh, maybe hard to understand uh, verse and doctrine that Jesus here gives us, uh, which he says that everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Of course, this is a difficult verse, a difficult passage to understand exactly what Jesus means here. And I think commentators have rightly and helpfully understood this to, uh, for Jesus here to be speaking of a, a sort of heightened sense of hardness of heart. Uh, so, so it's not simply, as, as we see with the Pharisees in the Gospels, a rejection of Jesus Christ, but, but even further, a rejection of the power and witness of the Spirit that goes along with Christ. We find this elsewhere in the Gospels, that when the Pharisees ascribe to Jesus the works of the devil, he says that they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And this sin cannot be forgiven because of the great hardness of heart, uh, the great rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not simply of, of his doctrine, but also of the, the powerful witness of the Spirit that goes along with this. And so Jesus in these verses presents before us two different things. A, a good confession and a bad confession. 
But notice the stakes uh, around this issue, Jesus says, are not low, but they are, in fact, very high. He says, as he describes this in verse 8 and 9, that there are eternal consequences to the confession of our mouths. What we say, what we believe about Jesus Christ, he says, has eternal consequences. For notice again in verse 8 and 9, the way that Jesus phrases this. Those who acknowledge Christ, he says, I will acknowledge before the angels of God. And those who deny me, I will deny before the angels of God. See, Jesus is here speaking to the fact that there is a day of judgment coming. As the scriptures say that the the God has appointed a day in which Christ will judge all men according to their word, according to their confession. And and I think as we read this, we ought to have a a sort of sense of of fear and awe. Uh, The the eternal weight of consequences relating to this confession, these two choices that Jesus here describes, uh, ought ought to create a, a trembling within us. These are eternal matters, Jesus says. And so first here, Jesus is warning against denying him. There are eternal consequences, eternal uh, judgment that comes against those who will not confess Christ with their mouths in this life. But I think for us as Christians, as we read these verses, we also ought to draw from this not just a, a trembling of soul, but I think Jesus gives this to us as a great encouragement for our souls, as a great hope and encouragement for us. That when we confess Christ before men, he says, our souls will not be put to shame. Though it is difficult now to confess Christ, uh, though there are trials, though there are difficulties, uh, Jesus says that in the end, you will be vindicated. There is hope for those who confess Christ in the end. I'm sure each and every one of us know that in this life, in this world now, it is difficult to confess Christ. I think J.C. Ryle really helpfully describes this. Ryle says that uh, the difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It was never easy in any period. It will never be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution. And yet the great encouragement that Jesus gives for our souls... Uh, in the face of this laughter and ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution, is that there is a day coming in which Christ will confess us before the angels of God. There is hope. There is vindication for those who confess Christ in this life. And so here we see first Jesus calling us, exhorting us as his people to this good confession, to confess Christ before men. But he goes even a step further in verses 11 and 12, where I think we see Jesus teaching us about, we might say, defending the faith. He both calls us to confess the faith, or we might say, standing by it, defending the faith that we confess. So looking in at verses 11 and 12, you you can see the situation that Jesus is addressing and envisioning. So verse 11, he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So you see Jesus moves from the the, the individual and, and corporate confession of Christians before men to a very particular circumstance. Uh, he, he envisions his disciples being brought before the rulers of the world, both religious and civil. 
being brought before them. And and notice, I think it's very significant the way he introduces this in verse 11. Uh, You notice he does not say, uh, if you are brought before the rulers and authorities, you should say this. Uh, He does not say that it may happen, or it is possible that one day you will be brought before the rulers and authorities. But no, notice what he says in verse 11. He says, when, and when you will be brought, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. I think it's immensely striking that Jesus says it in this way. Uh, For for in Jesus' mind, this isn't just a a question, a a possibility that might happen. Uh, But no, for Jesus, he says that this is a sure and certain reality that the church will face. It will happen. His people will be brought before the rulers to give account for the the confession that they have made. Uh, And even here, I think we learn a very important truth that Jesus uh, is seeking to teach us. Uh, That when we fulfill this this first point that he's called us to, uh, when we confess him before men, by faith, truly and rightly, there will be questions, there will be hostility, and there will be opposition to that confession. See, Jesus' second point here in verses 11 and 12, I think, naturally flows out of the first. Uh, For we have to understand the context, uh, the world in which we confess Christ before men. Uh, Jesus describes this in John uh, chapter 15, verse 19, uh, where there he speaks of his followers and says that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Elsewhere, Jesus says that the world hates you because they hate Christ. They hate me. And so we confess Christ before men in a context, in a a world and situation that hates the Christ whom we confess and therefore hates us. Elsewhere, uh, the Apostle Paul describes the nature of the gospel uh, very famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where there he describes uh, the gospel, the, the word of the cross, as folly to those who are perishing. It's folly, he says, to the world around us, that which we confess. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That, that encompasses all people. The world hates the Christ whom we confess, and the gospel about Christ is a confusion to them. It's, it's folly. It is a stumbling block. And so it ought not to surprise us when we confess Christ that we will face these, these questions this opposition that Jesus here foresees. And if, if we do not uh, believe the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we can see it confirmed uh, throughout the New Testament uh, in the inspired account of the early church and, and the ministry of the apostles. We see this continually happen over and over and over again. Uh, we see Jesus himself in his passion at the end of the Gospels. He's brought before the rulers the Jewish rulers, the Roman rulers, brought before them to give account of himself. Uh, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, after they heal uh, the man and after they preach the gospel in Acts 4, they're brought before the elders, rulers, and scribes uh, so that they might question and challenge them for what they're preaching and what they're doing. I think as we've seen and and listened to our sermons and Sunday mornings through uh, the book of Acts, we've seen, especially at the end of Acts, that this happens continually in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the last seven or eight chapters are filled with these kinds of instances that Jesus here foresees. So the Apostle Paul is brought before Jewish leaders. 
to give account of the gospel. He's brought before Felix the governor, Agrippa and Bernice. Uh, He even goes to Rome to give account of the gospel. Before the, the greatest rulers of the earth, he's brought before to give account of the confession of Christ, which he has. So we see that this is a certain reality that Jesus foresees. And even if we uh, as individuals are not those who uh, will be called before rulers and counselors, uh, who will not be called before the great authorities of the world, uh, we all know that in our Christian lives, as we live under this great confession, questions will come up. Opposition will be had for each and every one of us as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I think the Apostle Peter foresees this. Uh, this is why he commands in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, to the whole church. Uh, he says there, In your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So this is a certain reality that Jesus foresees for his church in the future. And notice the main command that he gives in the face of this Uh, incoming situation, notice the command that he gives in verse 11. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. I think this can be a a difficult thing to grasp, uh, this teaching that Jesus is here giving. Uh, Because the the situation that he is foreseeing and setting before his followers, I think is inherently fearsome. Uh, We might think inherently produces anxiety uh, to be brought before those who have authority. Uh, the rulers of the world. It seems to be inherently producing of anxiety within us. It seems to be inherently fearsome to us. And so we might ask, why should we not be anxious? Why does Jesus here command us not to be anxious in the face of such a formidable situation? And he says to us very clearly in verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. See, Christ gives us here a great promise for our souls. Uh, In the midst of making a bold confession in a difficult world, he gives to us the promise here that he will give to us his spirit to lead and to guide his people into what they ought to say. Certainly, I don't think we ought to understand this to to mean that we ought uh, never to prepare or think about what we ought to say. I don't think that's what Jesus is here teaching. But he is giving to us the promise that he will give to us, and even has given to us, his spirit, to lead and guide us as we face opposition for this great confession. We see, as many commentators have noted, similar promises like this throughout redemptive history. Most prominently in Exodus chapter 4, as God calls Moses to the great task of leading his people out of Egypt and speaking to Pharaoh, there he promises to Moses in Exodus 4.12, Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Of course, there are unique cases with the prophets and apostles as those who received the Spirit and spoke through the Spirit in unique ways. And yet, this is a promise that Jesus gives not only for these unique situations, but for his church in all ages. We have the promises in Matthew 28, verse 20, where Christ says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts 1.8, as Jesus is about to ascend, he promises to his church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
So here in our passage, I think Jesus gives to us two exhortations and two great promises. Particularly here, he calls us to be bold in confessing Christ and to be bold in defending and standing by that confession. He promises to us, uh, to to those who preach the scriptures and, and to all Christians who confess Christ, that he has not left us alone. When we confess him, he has not left us alone, but he has given to us his spirit by which he illuminates and guides the thoughts and words of his people, by which he leads and guides us in that great task which he has called us to. So may as we as his people, called to these things, uh, may we boldly confess and acknowledge Christ. And may we be those who fit the description of, of the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 39, in which he says that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May we even more heed the exhortation which the writer of the Hebrews again gives us in Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. Let us pray. O God in heaven, we do give thanks that you who have promised us these things are faithful. And so, O Christ, help us, grant to us the power of your Spirit that we might know what to say as we confess you. Grant to us to hold fast to our great confession. Confession. Grant to us that we might never waver, that we might never shrink back, but calls us by the power of your Spirit to hold fast to you, that you might be glorified in your church. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.